Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. What a great, great hymn that is. I hope that uh, you think on the words of songs like that. They were, they were written, I think, under inspiration. But the first line goes, immortal, invisible, God only wise. And you know, if you think about that, there's some rich truth in that for us as we talk this morning about encountering the Holy Spirit. Because encountering the Holy Spirit is, is a little more delicate requires a little more discipline and diligence in the fact that though God only was, He is the only one that has the ultimate answers for our life. He's immortal. And here's the hard part. He's invisible. And that puts us in a dilemma of relationship that the God who has all this wisdom of self-help for us, of direction, we have to approach Him in a wholly different way. And that's why this morning we're talking about wrestling with the Holy Spirit over the issues of life. In the summer of 1967, my uh, mom and my dad and a close friend of mine's parents uh, gave uh, a friend of mine named Wayne Smith and myself a unique graduation present. It's not one that I would necessarily recommend to those of you who are parents, but uh, they gave us a car, a rental car, and uh, all the gas that we could burn for 30 days and told us that we could set out across America for adventures. And uh, so we did that. We went wherever we wanted. And for the next 30 days, we did that. And of course, you, as you might imagine, that gift made Wayne and I ecstatic. As I thought about it afterwards, I wasn't sure exactly why our parents gave us that gift, whether it was A, a way of honoring our sense of responsibility, or B, just an easy way of getting rid of us. You know, you could tell the officer, officer, the last we saw, they were in a rental car heading out of town. We don't know where they are. Well, that began in the summer of 67, Wayne and Robert's excellent adventures. We took off across America and Canada and saw all kinds of farmland and rural areas and great cities. We explored the museums of Washington, D.C. We went through the great city of New York City. And uh, since in 1967, they were having the World's Fair in Toronto, Canada, we said, what the heck? And we went off to Toronto and spent some time there as well. Along the way, as you might imagine, we encountered some surprises. And one of those surprises was as we were passing through North Carolina. It was late at night, about midnight. Uh, we were looking for some place to stay. We took a wrong exit. That led to a series of wrong turns. And uh, we found ourselves in time on this dark street, kind of a dusty road, a row of small wooden houses all by ourselves, not knowing how to get back to the interstate. As we turned down a road, suddenly in front of us, or running out in front of us, was a very large woman wearing a very small nightie. And uh, she ran out and stood right in front of us and put her hands on the hood. And there was nowhere we could go. I mean, we had to stop. And you could tell she had this panic-stricken look in her face. And she ran over to the side of the car, the window side that I was on. I wasn't driving at the time. And she began to say to me, you've got to help me. I'm in big trouble. 
I need to get out of here. Would you please, please take me to my brother's house? Well, I was 18 years old, and I turned to Wayne, my friend, and Wayne looked at me, and we were speechless. But before we had any time to discuss, suddenly she starts climbing through the window into the back seat of our car. And so Wayne and I looked up, and as she was climbing in the window, she wasn't able to get through, so her feet were sticking out the back. And then she uttered these words. She said, my husband is trying to kill me. And we looked up, and coming out of one of those houses was our worst nightmare. That's right, it was him. And he had a gun. And so I began to scream. And Wayne began to scream. And the woman, she was already screaming. And so finally I said, hit it, Wayne. And so off we went fishtailing down that dirt road to find a brother we had never seen <laughs> with a woman we didn't even know with her legs still sticking out of the back of the automobile. <laughs> now, why do I tell you a story like that? Well, you know, everyone here is on an excellent adventure. You are. You're on an excellent adventure, and somewhere in your adventure, you're going to come across some very big surprises in your life. They can't be avoided. They're the kind of surprises that just come out of the night and put their hands on your car. And they won't go away. And they've got to be dealt with. They are big, life-changing issues that you can't escape. And they're wild. And they're scary. And you can't control them. You can't even get your arms around them. They're too big. You can't make sense of them. And you're not prepared for the decisions that you're having to make at this moment. And yet, as I've said, they won't go away. They crawl into your window, into your car, and they're screaming things like this. Are you going to marry Linda or not? It's time to decide. Yeah, you're 23 years old. Yeah, this is for life. You going to do it? Is she the one for you? Okay, you're unhappy with that job. So why don't you quit? Not sure I'm ready for that or prepared for that. Yes, this is a horrible tragedy. Now, are you going to be bitter the rest of your life? Irresponsible? Or both? It's a big decision. Where do I send my child to school? Education is so important. Public school, private school, home school. This is our life. Now that you're out of college, what are you going to do the rest of your life? Whoa, is that scary? I'll start that company, but I'm going to have to use my whole life savings to do it. Is that the right thing to do? If you don't confront them about that serious problem, who will? So we left you. Now what are you going to do? Who am I really? <laughs> what are my capacities? 
What does God really want to do with my life? You know, those are huge decisions. That's real life that won't go away. It's in the back seat of your car. And no matter what you do through life, no matter how much you try to manage it or control it, you're going to encounter issues you're not prepared for and decisions that you're not ready to make. But they won't go away. And they're uncomfortable. And they're risky. And they're dangerous. And there are no guarantees with your decision. None. With that life partner, none. You won't know whether you did it right or wrong until years later, and then it's too late. So how do you make big decisions like this with any sense of confidence, any sense of peace? Certainly the voice of God's Word that Rich introduced us to last week is a tremendous help with its wonderful wisdom. But I want you to know, since we're going to be honest here this morning, even with the Word, even when I open it, as I did in 1970 for myself, I don't find anywhere in there as I agonize over this life-changing decision. I can't find in the Proverbs where it says, and you shall marry Sherod. I didn't ever find that. Or, you know, where you turn over, you know, in the, in the epistles and it says, and you shall take that promotion in Kansas City. Doesn't tell me that either. Though the Word gives me boundaries for making decisions, the heart of the decision is anything but objective. It catapults us into a much more uncomfortable environment. It's the environment of subjectivity. And what do we do there? Let's face it, the biggest issues of life that you'll encounter over your lifetime leaves you with one of three possibilities. Either you're left to fate, as the ancient Greeks believed, you know, life is fixed, you're left to yourself, like so many modern philosophies now believe when they say life is just what you make it. I mean, you know, if you feel like you love her, just get married. You mean you're going to make a, a whole decision for a lifetime on just some feelings? Or I guess this is what I'll do with my life, and so you take that job on guesswork? Or I'm going to choose this college because, well, my best friend's going there. Is that a good way to decide? Life's just what you make it. There's a third, though, and that's what we want to look at this morning. It's what Orthodox, Christ Orthodox Christianity has always believed, and there is, in the midst of these huge decisions, there is a personal God that desires to meet you in a personal way, if you'll give Him the time, and with an encounter of His Holy Spirit, God desires to lead you specifically through life. Now, you have to decide whether you believe that or not, but that's the position of Orthodox Christianity. All of this, of course, brings us to a story of a wrestler I want you to look at in Genesis chapter 32. It's an interesting story. For some of you who've been in the church for a while, it'll be a familiar story, but this morning I want it to become your story because that's what this story is given to become, your story and my story. Now, as you turn there, we're on a journey. Uh, Jacob is our character, and he's on a journey. And uh, he's going to encounter some individuals in the front of his car, too. And they're angels. Notice it says in verse 1, Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. It was totally unexpected, totally out of the blue. And Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim, 
which literally means two camps. Now, to start the context of this story, Jacob is on a journey. He's on a journey back to the promised land. He's been out of the promised land for some 20 years for a reason. He had grown up there with his dad and brothers, but he had made a mess of things. In his conniving, in his swindling, in his manipulating, in his deceiving, he has robbed his brother of his birthright, Esau. He has created a family feud. He's manipulated the whole family. He has trusted in his own instincts and broken the family apart. And ultimately, because of Esau's hatred for him, he had to flee for his very life. In fact, the last thing he heard 20 years ago when he left the land was Esau plotting and planning to have Jacob killed. And so he moves to Haran for the second phase of his life. And while he was in Haran, he encountered God in some special ways. That didn't stop him from trusting his own instincts from time to time. And if you read back a few chapters, you can still see him kind of manipulating circumstances to get the desired results. That was his basic instinct. But he did trust God from time to time, and God blessed him. But now God was calling him back to the promised land to be the patriarch, the one through whom God would multiply his descendants and ultimately the person of Jesus Christ would come on the scene. But to go back, he had to go back making a big decision whether it was safe to go back. You see, Esau was still there. And so in this big decision, he had to decide how he was going to approach Esau because he was still unreconciled with his brother and whether Esau would take it out on him when he saw him coming. So what's happening when he meets these angels is just simply God reminding him that I'm with you. You can trust me in moving back into the land. But it's going to be real easy moving back into the land for Esau to trust his old instincts of deceit and trickery. Notice in verse 1, God uses these angels to remind and assure Jacob. That's why he names this place Mahanaim, which literally means, as I said, two camps. I'm camping here, that's Jacob, and God's camping here with me. I have my resources, but I also have God's resources. And there are every person here could utter these same words, Mahanaim, two camps. Every one of us live in two camps with our own resources, but if we're Christians, we also have God's resources. And in this, probably this moment while he's at this camp, I'm sure this was a thrilling moment of encouragement to Jacob. The same way from time to time, worship is a thrilling encouragement because you get a sense of God's resources. They're available to me. And sometimes we get real pumped up thinking, yeah, my problem's not nearly as bad as I thought it was. I can trust God for that. And so you leave and walk through those doors thinking, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take that land. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on that issue in a fresh way because God's with me. I'm sure that's how Jacob felt until reality shows up. See, it's great to go out with that kind of faith but does that faith hold up under the pressure of circumstances? I want you to watch the circumstances unfold, starting in verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my servant Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed until now, and I have oxen and donkeys. In other words, he's talking about God blessing him, and flocks and male and female servants. Now I've sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messenger returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. Hooray! <laughs> and 400 men are coming with him. Uh-oh. Then Jacob, verse 7, was greatly 
afraid and distressed? I guess so. See, reality's shown up in the hood of his car. It's climbing in the window with him, and now he has to say, what do I do? And he does what you and I do when we can see the problem, but we don't have time for the invisible God to help us solve the problem. Right? So what do we do? We panic. That's what we do. And we begin to concoct all kinds of plans and things like that to deliver ourselves rather than to look to God. And that's what he does. Look at verse 7. He divides the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks, then the other company, which is left, will escape. Now, that's not what God had promised him in moving him back in the land. He had promised him success and prosperity. But in light of these circumstances, Jacob couldn't trust God. He's in damage control. Have you been there before? He's trying to figure out how he can get away by the hair of his chinny, chin, chin. He's trying to think how he can make this thing work because it doesn't look like it's going to work out. And so he devises his plan about breaking his, his little uh, entourage into two companies. And then after he does that, he prays. Does that sound familiar? See, we get confronted with reality. We panic. We make all our plans and we ask God to bless it. Notice verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who didst say to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am an unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to thy servant. For with my staff only, that's, he's emphasizing that. That's all I've got. I don't have any troops. I've just got my staff. I've trusted you. I've crossed this Jordan and now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the, mother, the mothers with the children. For thou didst say, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea which not be numbered for multitude. In other words, God, I've made my plans. Be merciful to me. Is Jacob like us? I mean, he is like me to the max. We encounter these big unexpected issues in our life and we frantically make our plans that will ensure minimal damage as we plot and we scheme and then we play, pray, oh God, save me. We get married and we put the ring on her finger. We get in the car to drive off to our honeymoon and as we're driving down the road, we look into the starry heavens and we go, oh, please God, make this work. Up until then, we hadn't thought much about it. We've been riding this giant wave of emotion. We were in love. Now we sense the dire responsibility of what we've just done. So now we pray. Or we get this wonderful job opportunity, and in the heat of the emotion and the increase in salary and the new home we're going to be able to get, we say yes. And then as we're driving to work that day, it suddenly dawns on us, I have never talked to God Oh, God, please, your servant, bless him, save him, make it work. That's me. It's so different than the way Jesus lived. Remember when Jesus was going to choose his disciples? He wasn't choosing a mate, but he was choosing his apostles. 
He didn't go, well, I'm going to pick you, 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 and you. Come with me. And then that night went out on the mountain and said, God, whatever you do, make these jerks work. That's, he didn't do that. He went on the mountain and he prayed all night. And he asked God, what do you, who do you want me to select? It was all subjective. It wasn't written in the Bible, Peter, James, and John. He went and prayed about it, thought about it, wrestled with it. And then he came down and he knew who he was supposed to select and he just simply obeyed. What a different, altogether different way of life between Jesus and Jacob. And they're going to meet up later in this passage. Even after praying this prayer, in the verses that follow down to verse 22, he panics even further. He divides his group up into even smaller companies. He's trying to protect his possessions. He sends a few of the least valuable things on ahead to offer as presents to his brother Esau. We could put in quotations, bribes. See, he's still deceiving. He's still manipulating. In verse 22, he goes even further. It says he arose in the night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children, those things that were most valuable to him, and he snuck them away under the cover of darkness. Even if the camp got destroyed, the whole camp, he was going to get them away. So he took them five miles up to this little stream, this little ford called Jabuk, and put them across the stream so that he might at least protect them. And at that point, he finds himself, as verse 24 says, alone. And in for the lesson of his life. You see, unbeknownst to him, Jabuk means wrestle. That's what it means in Hebrew. And we're going to see the wrestling match of the century. This is better than Hulk Hogan meeting Mr. Perfect on WrestleMania. I mean, this is an unbelievable wrestling match that's going to take place in these next few verses. Let me read it for you. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, that is Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. And this man said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And the man blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God's face, face to face, yet my life has been preserved. <laughs> Is that not a strange story? And yet, though you and I will never physically wrestle with God, here's what I want you to hear as we move through this passage. What is being set forth here in this very physical setting, described in very physical terms, is how you and I spiritually wrestle through the big items in our life and make sense of our life and find confidence in who we are and what we're to do. Five special insights I want you to note in these few verses. The first is this. Wrestling with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to compare the man that Jacob's wrestling with with the Holy Spirit, and you'll see why in just a moment. Wrestling with the Holy Spirit over the issues of life demands, and you can put that in quotes and capital letters, demands that God have time with us alone. You see, in verse 24, 
Jacob has finally done all his scheming and planning, and he finds himself alone, and that's exactly where God wants him to be, to seize the opportunity. Because God never really gets clear to a person. Never, that person never feels like he's really encountered God apart from aloneness. And we live in such a busy world that takes all the aloneness away from us. Listen to what one writer said. We live in a world starved for solitude, for silence, for privacy, and therefore starved for meditation. You know what meditation is? Meditation is the place where all the issues of life revolve around you. And you begin to sense in that mystery that God is beginning to move and speak and press and convict. There's no time for it. The writer says, when the world says you may be religious when you're alone, the world also adds under its breath, I will see to it that you are never alone. Is that not true? You go to a restaurant, there's the big screen TV, all kinds of noise and music. You've got your car phone, your fax, you've got people in your life, and there is so much noise and clutter that the voice of God is drowned out in it all. And yet what Jacob found out is what we need to hear. After he'd done all his scheming and all his conniving, been so caught up in all his plans, he had no time to hear God because you know what's absent? When he heard Esau was coming, there was no place where he stopped and said, God, what do I do? He just went about his natural instincts, didn't he? And in all of that, had no thought of God until God finally found him alone and then came and met with him. Which brings us to the second insight. In wrestling with the Holy Spirit, there will be an intense struggle. It won't feel good, do you hear me? It won't feel good. I had some people after the first service come up and say, I'm in, in that intense struggle. And they, they don't speak of it with this great radiance on their face. They speak of it like a wrestler in agony. They're fighting to find out some hard answers about themselves and their direction. It's an intense struggle of wills. And there's a lot more going on when you encounter God than Him just answering your problem or giving you an answer to, for direction. He's got that in mind, but He's got other issues He wants to deal with in this wrestling match. Notice in verse 24, Jacob wrestled. It says, all night. The word wrestle in verses 24 and 25, that's the only time it's used in the Old Testament. It comes from the root word dust. The, the image that's conveyed is this man, whoever he was, came out of the blue here and began to wrestle with Jacob, and they were down rolling around in the dirt. <laughs> Isn't that a strange image? These two guys fighting it out all night. Well, who was this man? In verse 30, it says, when Jacob looked at him, he saw the face of God. You know when two wrestlers are down fighting, they get pretty personal, don't they? Get real close to each other. And I can imagine having this guy in the headlock and looking down and looking into his face and suddenly, for whatever image it was, you began to see this is not just man. This is God. I've seen the face of God. Who was that? This God-man. That ring a bell? Remember when Jesus was being accosted by the Pharisees and they said, we have Abraham as our father. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. That's before this time. I am. I've existed as the God-man even before Abraham. 
And if you go through the pages of the Old Testament, periodically an angel, and the word angel means messenger, the angel of the Lord shows up, shows up at Sodom and Gomorrah, shows up at different places. And here, the messenger of God, the God-man, shows up, and I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus Christ. Now, that, that even makes us a stranger story. Jesus and Jacob wrestling around in the dirt. Can you imagine wrestling with Jesus? Have you ever thought of him as wanting to wrestle somebody? And yet there he is, wrestling. Why? Because in this wrestling match, there's some issues that have to be worked through as to who leads who. There are some issues that go even deeper than that because in this wrestling match, this man, Jesus, is going to expose Jacob's sin. He's going to teach him about his life and what he has to admit if he's ever to gain the blessing of God. It's all mysterious. But I want you to know, folks, spiritual life is mysterious. And there are encounters that you may have with the Spirit that I won't understand, but in that, you've received direction for your life in ways that no one can take away from you. This is what happens here. There's a third thing. In wrestling with the Holy Spirit, in wrestling with God here, God will expose the foolishness of our self-sufficiency, but He will never violate or crush our will. You want to see a real interesting statement in this story? It's the first statement of verse 25. And I'm going to use Jesus' name here. And when Jacob saw, or excuse me, and when Jesus saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob. <laughs> they wrestled all night and Jesus couldn't pin him? You've got to be kidding. You're talking about the God of the universe. The God who flung the stars out across the, the galaxy. You mean he was not able to defeat a mere man? Why? I believe it's because of what the rest of the Scriptures teach us, and that's this. God will never force anyone in this room to submit to Him. He has personally limited His power to keep your will off limits. What He does is He moves around you in His loving way, and sometimes His powerful way, and sometimes His wrestling way to get you to finally yield your will. <clears throat> On the other hand, you might notice he does dislocate Jacob's thigh. He bruises him pretty good, roughs him up. Now, why did he do that? He, do, he did that, I think, because he wanted to show Jacob his vulnerability. He wanted to let Jacob know, just because you've wrestled with me all night and I've not prevailed over you, I want you to know I could have. You sure couldn't prevail over me now that you're limping like that. See, I want you to see your vulnerability and the foolishness of thinking that you are strong enough to take me on. And I also want to remind you by dislocating that thigh that I can take away any of the strengths that you have that you depend on so as not to depend on me. <laughs> I can take them away just like that. And yet even in this injury, Jesus does not force His will on Jacob. I want you to know as an application I have seen God touch and strip and wound men and women to such an extent that every asset they've ever possessed for their own self-sufficiency has been taken away from them. He's brought them down to ground zero. And yet, 
because God refused to touch their wills. I have seen those very same people who it should have been clear as a bell to them that God was trying to get their attention in their broken marriage, their bankruptcy, their failing health, and all the other things that God wanted them. Even then, He didn't touch their will, and so they stood there, lonely, pitiful, in their futility, thinking back on when they were a somebody and now they're a nobody, and rather than yield to the living God, they still stand there without any merit to this conclusion in arrogance, in pride, still refusing to yield their will. That's an incredible thing. The fourth insight, in wrestling with the Holy Spirit, seeking God's blessing is not enough. We saw that. You must come to terms with what is holding you back from God's blessing and repent of it before God will really bless you and let you go forward. How do I know that? <clears throat> Look at verse 26. I mean, here he is lame, bruised, beat up, and all Jacob can do now is hold on to this man. And the day is breaking, and the man says, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Bless me. Bless me, don't leave me alone. I don't have the strength to face now my brother Esau. Reminds me of an old Keith Green song on one of his albums. Keith Green was such a passionate speaker, but he, he would sing about God speaking to his people. I remember one line of one song that went, Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. That's all I ever hear. That's all I ever hear from you people. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. That's Jacob. I don't want to learn anything from you. I don't want you dealing with my nature. Just bless me. That's what he's saying here. But you know what? He's not going to do that. And I think Jacob, in looking at Jesus and the things that transpire that are not recorded in this text, comes to a place where he has to face himself. And I think that happens when Jesus says, What is your name? Now, you've got to remember the context here. He's not asking him for his formal name. When he says name in the Old Testament, a lot of times he's saying, tell me who you are. Remember, a lot of times they change people's names to reflect their change in character, their change in nature. Jesus called Simon Peter because now you're going to be a rock. That's going to be your nature. So he says to him, tell me your name. Let's get to the real issue. So he says, I'm Jacob. You know what Jacob means in Hebrew? Heel grabber. The one who trips people up so he can take advantage of them. You see that with little boys on the playground. When a friend's walking by, my kids do that. My son, other, one son's running in the kitchen, my other son goes, and just laughs, just takes advantage. Just, just, it's, 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 a, it's a metaphor of deceit of manipulation that's been true of Jacob's life since day one. He says, you know what? I will not be able to bless you until I can first heal you of that. Heal grabber. There have been times where people have been wrestling through a big decision and what they need to come to terms with is not who they should marry or whether they should take that job, but they need to make a confession like, when somebody says, who are you? They go, jealous, envious, 
fearful, adulterer. Alcoholic. That's who I am. See, until you can name your nature, until God can deal with that, He can't give you the new and bless you. Until you can come to admit what really is holding you back, you can't be blessed. Until you can finally say, Attic. That's what I am. Selfish. Conceited. Can't be a healer. I think that's what you hear, see here. This is a confession when he says, Jacob. He's confessing. And in this admission of what he was, this brokenness, God now could offer hope for change. And we see that hope when he gives him a new name called Israel, which means God will contend for you. <laughs> He's going to fight for you. All you need to do is trust him, not be manipulating circumstances. Just trust him. Do what he says. And I think Jacob agreed to that. And that's why when you come to verse 29, it says that the man blessed him there. He finally got the blessing. He could finally go forward. And that brings us to the last insight. In wrestling with the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> people are not going to be able to see your personal struggle. But they will see the results. You see the results in Jacob when he came out when the dawn was breaking? I wonder how many people said, what happened to you? You know, he's going. And he says, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. You really wouldn't. You know, there are people that come out of their secret time with God. It can't be exposed by the daylight. It's secret. And they'll come out of those times with new convictions, with a new sense of God's authority over their life or guidance that the Bible couldn't give them, but the Spirit did. And they can't explain it to anybody. They can tell you, tell you what, they, what they felt, but you're going to kind of go, well, okay. But you can see the results in their life. You could see the results in Jacob's life. There was a definite change of lifestyle. Look at Genesis chapter 33 because what unfolds next is not him hiding in fear, but him moving forward in faith with no guarantees when he meets his brother Esau, but he's not hiding anymore. You don't see him back at the end of the processional. Look at verse 3. It says, as he lined up this processional and saw Esau, it said, instead of being at the rear, he himself passed on ahead of all of them and ran to his brother Esau and bowed before him. That took guts. With 400 men, that was an act of incredible boldness. No guarantees other than out of this encounter with God, he went forth by faith. Just like some people, out of their encounter with God, they take that job and they never look back. Out of that encounter with God, they marry that man or that woman. And they don't look back. They don't wonder the what ifs. It's out of that encounter because they invited Jesus Christ into that encounter and they wrestled till they got an answer. And there'll be other encounters along the way. God supernaturally rewards that too because when he gets to Jacob, and, and we don't hear of Jacob through this whole thing, and you think, well, what is Jacob going to do? I mean Esau, rather. I'm sorry. What is Esau going to do? We hadn't heard of him. Is he going to pull out the dagger? Is he going to fume with seething bitterness? No, you come to verse 4, and when he meets Esau, it says, then Esau ran to meet him. This brother he had betrayed. And Esau embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept together in reconciled love. Why? Because God had contended in front of Jacob. 
He had applied his resources. What Jacob believed in faith after wrestling with the Holy Spirit, he now experienced in real life. God was with him. God would bless him. What are the issues you struggle with? What are the big issues that have their hands on the hood of your car? And the music on the radio is immortal, invisible, God-only wise. What are they? You know, to choose a mate or to make a job change or to address a personal problem or to seek help or whatever, without knowing, without me knowing that I had first at least wrestled with God privately in myself, that's foolishness and sought His involvement. This is the pattern of, of life for the evangelical church. It's the pattern of orthodox Christianity. It's the lifestyle of Jesus. In the big issues of life, God's Word can only go so far, His written Word. Only the living Spirit of God who's in us can deal with these situations personally, directly, deeply, surgically, with specific answers and names that'll give us confidence. You'll never get that anywhere else. If you don't get it there, you'll always have these yearnings about should I, could I, would I? But they'll never be resolved because they cannot be resolved apart from these kind of encounters. Do you have time in your life to wrestle with God in the big issues? It's going to be the difference between a secular Christian lifestyle and a truly powerful spiritual and spirit-led Christian lifestyle. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.